Chapter 10, Part 1 Once out of sight of the church, I pressed forward briskly on my way to Knowlesbury. The road was, for the most part, straight and level. Whenever I looked back over it, I saw the two spies steadily following me. For the greater part of the way, they kept at a safe distance behind. But once or twice they quickened their pace, as if with the purpose of overtaking me, then stopped, consulted together, and fell back again to their former position. They had some special object evidently in view, and they seemed to be hesitating or differing about the best means of accomplishing it. I could not guess exactly what their design might be, but I felt serious doubts of reaching Knowlesbury without some mischance happening to me on the way. These doubts were realized. I had just entered on a lonely part of the road with a sharp turn at some distance ahead, and had just concluded, calculating by time, that I must be getting near to the town, when I suddenly heard the steps of the men close behind me. Before I could look round, one of them, the man by whom I had been followed in London, passed rapidly on my left side and hustled me with his shoulder. I had been more irritated by the manner in which he and his companion had dogged my steps all the way from old Wilmingham than I was myself aware of, and I unfortunately pushed the fellow away smartly with my open hand. He instantly shouted for help. His companion, the tall man in the gamekeeper's clothes, sprang to my right side, and the next moment the two scoundrels held me pinioned between them in the middle of the road. The conviction that a trap had been laid for me, and the vexation of knowing that I had fallen into it, fortunately restrained me from making my position still worse with two men, one of whom would, in all probability, have been more than a match for me single-handed. I repressed the first natural movement by which I had attempted to shake them off, and looked about to see if there was any person near to whom I could appeal. A laborer was at work in an adjoining field who must have witnessed all that had passed. I called to him to follow us to the town. He shook his head with stolid obstinacy, and walked away in the direction of a cottage which stood back from the high road. At the same time, the men who held me between them declared their intention of charging me with an assault. I was cool enough and wise enough now to make no opposition. "'Drop your hold of my arms,' I said, "'and I will go with you to the town.' The man in the gamekeeper's dress roughly refused, but the shorter man was sharp enough to look to consequences and not to let his companion commit himself by unnecessary violence. He made a sign to the other, and I walked on between them with my arms free. We reached the turning in the road, and there, close before us, were the suburbs of Knowlesbury. One of the local policemen was walking along the path by the roadside. The men at once appealed to him, he replied that the magistrate was then sitting at the town hall and recommended that we should appear before him immediately. We went on to the town hall. The clerk made out a formal summons and the charge was preferred against me with the customary exaggeration and the customary perversion of the truth on such occasions. 
the magistrate, an ill-tempered man, with a sour enjoyment in the exercise of his own power, inquired if anyone on or near the road had witnessed the assault. And, greatly to my surprise, the complainant admitted the presence of the laborer in the field. I was enlightened, however, as to the object of the admission by the magistrate's next words. He remanded me at once for the production of the witness, expressing at the same time his willingness to take bail for my reappearance, if I could produce one responsible surety to offer it. If I had been known in the town, he would have liberated me on my own recognizances. But as I was a total stranger, it was necessary that I should find responsible bail. The whole object of the stratagem was now disclosed to me. It had been so managed as to make a remand necessary in a town where I was a perfect stranger, and where I could not hope to get liberty on bail. The remand merely extended over three days, until the next sitting of the magistrate. But in that time, while I was in confinement, Sir Percival might use any means he pleased to embarrass my future proceedings, perhaps to screen himself from detection altogether, without the slightest fear of any hindrance on my part. At the end of the three days, the charge would, no doubt, be withdrawn, and the attendance of the witness would be perfectly useless. My indignation, I may almost say my despair, at this mischievous check to all further progress, so base and trifling in itself, and yet so disheartening and so serious in its probable results, quite unfitted me, at first, to reflect on the best means of extricating myself from the dilemma in which I now stood. I had the folly to call for writing materials, and to think of privately communicating my real position to the magistrate. The hopelessness and the imprudence of this proceeding failed to strike me before I had actually written the opening lines of the letter. It was not till I had pushed the paper away, not till, I am ashamed to say, I had almost allowed the vexation of my helpless position to conquer me, that a course of action suddenly occurred to my mind, which Sir Percival had probably not anticipated, and which might set me free again in a few hours. I determined to communicate the situation in which I was placed to Mr. Dawson of Oak Lodge. I had visited this gentleman's house, it may be remembered, at the time of my first inquiries in the Blackwater Park neighborhood, and I had presented to him a letter of introduction from Miss Halcombe in which she recommended me to his friendly attention in the strongest terms. I now wrote, referring to this letter, and to what I had previously told Mr. Dawson of the delicate and dangerous nature of my inquiries. I had not revealed to him the truth about Laura, having merely described my errand as being of the utmost importance to private family interests with which Miss Halcombe was concerned. Using the same caution still, I now accounted for my presence at Knowlesbury in the same manner, and I put it to the doctor to say whether the trust reposed in me by a lady whom he well knew, and the hospitality I had myself received in his house, justified me or not in asking him to come to my assistance in a place where I was quite friendless. 
I obtained permission to hire a messenger to drive away at once with my letter in a conveyance which might be used to bring the doctor back immediately. Oak Lodge was on the Knollsbury side of Blackwater. The man declared he could drive there in forty minutes and could bring Mr. Dawson back in forty more. I directed him to follow the doctor wherever he might happen to be if he was not at home and then sat down to wait for the result with all the patience and all the hope that I could summon to help me. It was not quite half-past one when the messenger departed. Before half-past three, he returned and brought the doctor with him. Mr. Dawson's kindness and the delicacy with which he treated his prompt assistance, quite as a matter of course, almost overpowered me. The bail required was offered and accepted immediately, Before four o'clock on that afternoon, I was shaking hands warmly with the good old doctor, a free man again in the streets of Knowlesbury. Mr. Dawson hospitably invited me to go back with him to Oak Lodge and take up my quarters there for the night. I could only reply that my time was not my own, and I could only ask him to let me pay my visit in a few days when I might repeat my thanks and offer to him all the explanations which I felt to be only his due, but which I was not then in a position to make. We parted with friendly assurances on both sides, and I turned my steps at once to Mr. Wandsborough's office in the High Street. Time was now of the last importance. The news of my being free on bail would reach Sir Percival to an absolute certainty before night. If the next few hours did not put me in a position to justify his worst fears and to hold him helpless at my mercy, I might lose every inch of the ground I had gained, never to recover it again. The unscrupulous nature of the man, the local influence he possessed, the desperate peril of exposure with which my blindfold inquiries threatened him, all warned me to press on to positive discovery "'without the useless waste of a single minute. "'I had found time to think "'while I was waiting for Mr. Dawson's arrival, "'and I had well employed it. "'Certain portions of the conversation "'of the talkative old clerk, "'which had wearied me at the time, "'now recurred to my memory "'with a new significance, "'and a suspicion crossed my mind darkly "'which had not occurred to me "'while I was in the vestry.' On my way to Knowlesbury, I had only proposed to apply to Mr. Wandsborough for information on the subject of Sir Percival's mother. My object now was to examine the duplicate register of Old Wellmingham Church. Mr. Wandsborough was in his office when I inquired for him. He was a jovial, red-faced, easy-looking man, more like a country squire than a lawyer, and he seemed to be both surprised and amused by my application. He had heard of his father's copy of the register, but had not even seen it himself. It had never been inquired after, and it was no doubt in the strong room, among other papers, that had not been disturbed since his father's death. It was a pity, Mr. Wandsborough said, that the old gentleman was not alive to hear his precious copy asked for at last. He would have ridden his favorite hobby harder than ever now. How had I come to hear of the copy? Was it through anybody in the town? I parried the question as well as I could, 
It was impossible at this stage of the investigation to be too cautious, and it was just as well not to let Mr. Wandsborough know prematurely that I had already examined the original register. I described myself, therefore, as pursuing a family inquiry to the object of which every possible saving of time was of great importance. I was anxious to send certain particulars to London by that day's post, and one look at the duplicate register, paying, of course, the necessary fees, might supply what I required and save me a further journey to old Wilmingham. I added that, in the event of my subsequently requiring a copy of the original register, I should make application to Mr. Wandsborough's office to furnish me with the document. After this explanation, no objection was made to producing the copy. A clerk was sent to the strong room, and after some delay returned with the volume. It was of exactly the same size as the volume in the vestry, the only difference being that the copy was more smartly bound. I took it with me to an unoccupied desk. My hands were trembling. My head was burning hot. I felt the necessity of concealing my agitation as well as I could from the persons about me in the room before I ventured on opening the book. On the blank page at the beginning to which I first turned were traced some lines in faded ink, they contained these words. Copy of the marriage register of Wilmingham Parish Church, executed under my orders and afterwards compared, entry by entry, with the original, by myself. Signed, Robert Wandsborough, Vestry Clerk. Below this note, there was a line added in another handwriting as follows. Extending from the 1st of January, 1800, to the 30th of June, 1815. I turned to the month of September, 1803. I found the marriage of the man whose Christian name was the same as my own. I found the double register of the marriages of the two brothers. And between these entries, at the bottom of the page? Nothing. Not a vestige of the entry which recorded the marriage of Sir Felix Glyde and Cecilia Jane Elster in the register of the church. My heart gave a great bound and throbbed as if it would stifle me. I looked again. I was afraid to believe the evidence of my own eyes. No, not a doubt. The marriage was not there. The entries on the copy occupied exactly the same places on the page as the entries in the original. The last entry on one page recorded the marriage of the man with my Christian name, Below it, there was a blank space, a space evidently left because it was too narrow to contain the entry of the marriages of the two brothers, which, in the copy, as in the original, occupied the top of the next page. That space told the whole story. There, it must have remained in the church register from 1803, when the marriages had been solemnized and the copy had been made, to 1827, when Sir Percival appeared at Old Wilmingham. Here, at Knollsbury, was the chance of committing the forgery shown to me in the copy, and there, at Old Wilmingham, was the forgery committed in the register of the church. My head turned giddy. I held by the desk to keep myself from falling. 
of all the suspicions which had struck me in relation to that desperate man, not one had been near the truth. The idea that he was not Sir Percival Glyde at all, that he had no more claim to the baroncy and to Blackwater Park than the poorest laborer who worked on the estate, had never once occurred to my mind. At one time I thought he might be Anne Catherick's father, at another time I thought he might have been Anne Catherick's husband. The offense of which he was really guilty had been from first to last, beyond the widest reach of my imagination. The paltry means by which the fraud had been effected, the magnitude and daring of the crime that it represented, the horror of the consequences involved in its discovery, overwhelmed me. Who could wonder now at the brute restlessness of the wretch's life, at his desperate alterations between abject duplicity and reckless violence, at the madness of guilty distrust which had made him imprison Anne Catherick in the asylum, and had given him over to the vile conspiracy against his wife, on the bare suspicion that the one and the other knew his terrible secret. The disclosure of that secret might, in past years, have hanged him, might now transport him for life. The disclosure of that secret, even if the sufferers by his deception spared him the penalties of the law, would deprive him at one blow of the name, the rank, the estate, the whole social existence that he had usurped. This was the secret, and it was mine. A word from me, and house, lands, baronetcy were gone from him forever, a word from me, and he was driven out into the world, a nameless, penniless, friendless outcast. The man's whole future hung on my lips, and he knew it by this time, as certainly as I did. That last thought steadied me. Interests far more precious than my own depended on the caution which must now guide my slightest actions. There is no possible treachery which Sir Percival might not attempt against me, in the danger and desperation of his position, he would be staggered by no risks. He would recoil at no crime. He would literally hesitate at nothing to save himself. I considered for a minute. My first necessity was to secure positive evidence in writing of the discovery that I had just made, and in the event of any personal misadventure happening to me, to place that evidence beyond Sir Percival's reach, the copy of the register was sure to be safe in Mr. Wandsborough's strong room, but the position of the original in the vestry was, as I had seen with my own eyes, anything but secure. In this emergency, I resolved to return to the church, to apply again to the clerk, and to take the necessary extract from the register before I slept that night. I was not then aware that a legally certified copy was necessary, and that no document merely drawn out by myself could claim the proper importance as a proof. I was not aware of this, and my determination to keep my present proceedings a secret prevented me from asking any questions which might have procured the necessary information. My one anxiety was the anxiety to get back to old Wilmingham. I made the best excuses I could for the discomposure in my face and manner, which Mr. Wandsborough had already noticed, laid the necessary fee on his table, arranged that I should write to him in a day or two, 
and left the office, with my head in a whirl, and my blood throbbing through my veins at fever heat. It was just getting dark. The idea occurred to me that I might be followed again and attacked on the high road. My walking stick was a light one of little or no use for purposes of defense. I stopped before leaving Knowlesbury and bought a stout country cudgel, short and heavy at the head. With this homely weapon, if any one man tried to stop me, I was a match for him. If more than one attacked me, I could trust to my heels. In my school days, I had been a noted runner, and I had not wanted for practice since in the later time of my experience in Central America. I started from the town at a brisk pace and kept the middle of the road. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.